0: I'm Ian Wolf. On this summer edition, we visit the Wayback Machine and uncover the authentic, antique sounds of 2003 in genuine low fidelity, with stories on junk DNA, magnetised brains and psychoacoustics. First, some reporters find out about the effects of magnets on the human mind by researching online. Some reporters go and interview a brain scientist. Tim Baines stuck his head in the lion's mouth. In 2003, Tim Bain spoke to Eva Ferrados, a researcher at the Institute of Neuropsychiatry at the University of New South Wales, then actually stuck his head in the transcranial magnetic stimulation rig and had the language centers of his brain switched off while he spoke to her.
1: Eva Ferrados is a researcher at the uh... Institute for Neuropsychiatry at the Prince of Wales Hospital and at University of New South Wales. She uses a thing called a TMS machine to investigate how our brains work. Eva thank you for joining us on Discovery.
4: Hi Tim, how are you?
1: I'm very well thank you, Um, but I'm a bit curious I'm wondering TMS, what does it stand for what is TMS?
4: Well, TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation, and it all works through Faraday's first principles of electromagnetic conduction. So back in 1821, Faraday got a coil, ran an electric current through it very quickly, and when he held it near another coil, he found that it produced a secondary electric current, as if by magic. And he said, that must be a magnetic field passing the electrons across. So I do pretty much the same thing, grab one of these coils, pop it on the surface of someone's head the magnetic field passes through the skull and produces an electric current in the brain cells underneath now because electric uh, because brain cells are electrical in nature it's like switching them on artificially for a very short amount of time a very small area
1: so okay what is it what is it good for uh, why why do this apply these huge magnetic fields to people's brain to get their nerves working what what do you what do you do with this? What is it good for?
4: Oh, what's it not good for? Well, basically it gives us a new way to research the brain. So far, There's many things that we can see with the brain. You've got neuroimaging that can show bits of the brain that are lighting up when you're doing stuff. You've got psychological tests to get people to say and do things at certain times, but there's a bit of a missing link and that's basically matching up an area to a function. And so if I switch off someone's brain area whilst say they're reading a book and they can no longer read, I can say that that part of the brain is necessary for reading. So it's super useful, plus, a whole host of other things. It's been trialed as a treatment for depression, for obsessive compulsive disorder, et cetera, et cetera.
5: Oh,
1: very interesting. And what do you actually use uh, TMS for transcranial magnetic stimulation, now that I know that, in, in your work?
4: Well, I'm interested in uh, cognition, so the way people think, and I've decided to use TMS um, in working memory. So that's a really basic cognitive function. It's something we're using all day, every day. You're doing it now um it's a form of short-term memory and so if we start off with really simple stuff like working memory maybe we can use that to investigate more complex greater questions of the brain like who am i and where did i come from
1: Ooh, big questions um so that that you're looking at this this working memory what are the some of the other things people use tms for other clinical trials maybe
4: Well, as I mentioned, it is being trialled at the moment as a treatment for depression all over the world. Uh, It's coming up with some fairly positive results, but it's still got a fair way to go. Um, Also, at my research laboratory, they're also using it for obsessive compulsive disorder and it's coming up with some real cool stuff. And people are going to be looking at it in bipolar disorder and many other things I would imagine.
1: I know they use electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, uh, to treat some of bipolar de- depressed, manic depression patients and things like that and psychotic. Is, is there a potential for TMS to do the same?
4: Yeah, and well, TMS is sort of the nice version of ECT, if you will. So instead of trying to deliver an electric current directly to the brain, which means you've got to crank the machine right up because you can't get it through the skull. TMS is using a nice magnetic field, gentle, gentle. And so basically, it might be possibly for certain people with certain types of depression the answer to their problems.
1: Very interesting. Now, uh, earlier on, I actually went to uh, the Prince of Wales Hospital where uh, Eva gave me a little bit of transcranial magnetic stimulation, got it firsthand, and a bit of a recording of that session. Um, stupid straight. Uh, okay, so I'm about to get a few pulses of magnetic field here. What's the frequency? Two hertz. Two hertz, and what's the magnitude of that
4: magnetic
1: field? Uh sixty percent of about one point five Tesla. <coughs> right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven eight, nine, four, nine, four, three, Okay, that and as you can hear there, uh, that what was happening there was, I believe, the, the magnetic coil was placed over a specific part of my brain called the broker's area, which is responsible for speech. Is that right?
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, basically, whilst you were trying to say something, I was inhibiting that area, which prevented you from speaking.
1: Ooh, scary.
4: Well, it was.
1: It was a little scary, but it wasn't actually... Uh, I was able to walk away, you know, the problem I had when I was trying to say those numbers was just, I could think it, I could count it, I could move my jaw up and down, but my tongue was just not doing what uh, it was, uh, what I wanted to do, which is what it's doing right now, actually, Uh, my brain is obviously not connected with my tongue. Um, Eva, Ferrados, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Totally cool. That was the awesome Tim Baines, speaking with Eva Ferrados from the Institute of Neuropsychiatry at the University of New South Wales, why she switched off the language centres of his brain with a giant magnet. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, in Sydney on 2scr 107.3 and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. If junk DNA has no purpose, then why did an Australian scientist patenting junk DNA cause a controversy? From 2003, here's Amanda Hamilton interviewing Dr Malcolm Simons from the University of New South Wales about the patenting of junk DNA.
4: You've
3: probably all heard of a molecule called DNA. The role of DNA is to code for building proteins. Only 5% of the DNA was found to do that. The remaining 95% didn't seem to do anything, so it was called junk. Now it seems that the junk is not junk after all, and it was an Australian microbiologist who saw the value in this junk DNA. In fact, he went so far as to patent 95% of the DNA of all living creatures on our planet. It was an act of extraordinary and provocative foresight. Researchers are confirming that non-coding DNA holds critical clues to a vast range of diseases such as breast cancer, HIV, heart disease, Alzheimer's, ovarian, and skin cancer. The list is growing daily. A leading figure in world genetics, Professor John Mattock, recently claimed that the failure to recognize the implications of the non-coding DNA will go down as the biggest mistake in the history of molecular biology. Dr. Malcolm Simons has turned junk into gold, inflaming one of the greatest controversies of our time, the control and ownership of our genetic material. I spoke to Dr. Simons to find out more about how this patent came about.
5: Well, the idea idea was that uh, genes are what matter because they code for proteins. And anything that doesn't code for a protein isn't worth knowing about. And the diseases that we knew about uh, involved errors, mutations in coding region genes so the focus was on genes and even though it was known that they represent a, a very small proportion of the total genetic material the total genome 5% is the number commonly quoted basically people breathed a sigh of relief that it was only 1 20th of the genome they had to know anything about and the rest of it was not even barely given a name and so it was just thought to be junk and the in the 80s uh, we, we didn't have the ability uh, as we have now uh, to analyze the sequence the DNA at a sequence level and so there were indirect ways of looking at genes and th- although those markers were in the junk region Uh, people's mindset was what do they tell us about the genes for example there's a blood disorder that uh, your audience might have heard the name of thalassemia a red cell disorder Uh, well everybody was looking at the gene that is concerned with the globin that underlies the hemoglobin that is the blood pigment inside red cells that is defective and leads to the uh, clinical disease so everybody wanted to know about the globin gene they were using techniques which actually used markers around the gene more often than in it uh, but the mindset was let's just concentrate on coding region genes and when I came along uh, we had particular genes to look at but your audience probably knows about ABO blood groups they may have heard about HLA that's the genes that are involved in tissue typing that you need to to test and type for when you're matching for a donor for a Uh, a transplant recipient Uh, and we were looking at those HLA genes there are many 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 more of them they're much more complicated than any other region in the whole of the genome and we were still looking at the genes but the data was coming out of the non-coding regions so I had a chance to look at whether or not the non-coding regions were junk not that we were focused on the non-coding regions just that the technique worked in the non-coding regions and it occurred to me Lo and behold, the patterns we were seeing were not junk. They were not disordered. They were not chaotic. They were, in fact, highly non-random and highly organized. And that led me to think that, well, whatever's going on in the non coding region, it, can, it junk, it certainly wasn't.
3: And that led you to decide to take a patient out on this junk DNA?
5: No, uh, that was a scientific process where I just, I was living in the United States uh, this this research was done in Salt Lake City I was living in the Bay Area the new technology that all the younger geneticists know as polymerase chain reaction PCR to be able to grow one copy of a gene into a haystack of those copies I was just coming in so I knew about both worlds and I was basically commuting between both worlds and so it seemed to me that if you could if the if the, if the so-called junk reason region wasn't junk Maybe we could use this new technique uh, involving sequence amplification to capture all this ordered, non-random information. So it was an idea first, and I put it back into my my intellectual repository company in Hong Kong, and then eventually that company uh, looked for an investor, transferred that intellectual property into that company, and then sought to protect it by initiating a patent process. By by putting it in written form and filing it with a patent office as an application for patent, that's what happened.
3: It's been reported that this patent applies to 95% of the DNA of most living creatures. That's what we're reading in newspapers and things like that. Is that correct? I mean,
5: yeah, it's correct. Is that the the patent? The patent that was issued in 1997 uh, refers to the uh, use of the sequence information content in non-coding regions uh, as it it provides information about coding region genes and combinations of genes in all species, uh, yeah, in all species.
3: Already, there are over 2,000 worldwide infringements on the patent, which is held by a Melbourne-based company, Genetic Technologies. These companies are outraged and refuse to take the patent seriously. However, this week, the University of Sydney was the first academic institution to pay money to genetic technologies. These issues are not going to go away. They raise questions about whether or not it is fair enough for a researcher to patent his or her work and protect its outcome. Or, on the other hand, how much control do we want researchers or corporations to have
0: over our genes? That was Amanda Hamilton in 2003, speaking with Dr Malcolm Simons about patenting, junk DNA. Nymphomania sounds like it should be right on the happy list with owning a pub, but from 2003, Adam Mark doves into the mind to explain why nymphomania isn't healthy.
5: I'm ready to get up and do my thing. Go ahead, go ahead. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like a, like a sex machine, man. Moving, doing it, you know. Can I count it on? all? One, two, three, four. Yeah.
6: This week's Disease of the Week is nymphomania. Nymphomania is the name of a condition that was believed to be a psychological disorder in women, characterised by an overactive libido and an obsession with sex. The same condition in men was known as satyriasis, or Don Juan's disease. But unfortunately, contrary to popular belief, nymphomania is not actually a specific disorder in itself. Also says the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 4, the psychologist Teacher's Edition of the Brain. But more accurately, the condition of hypersexuality and abnormal heightened level of sexuality can be viewed as a symptom of other disorders such as bipolar disorder. This hypersexuality observed in the bipolar disorder is generally associated with the manic or the up phase of the disease. Health professionals sometimes use a number of labels for this potentially serious condition. Some call it hypersexuality, some sexual obsession, others use the term sexual addiction Comparing it with the uncontrolled use of a drug. Others argue that it's an issue of impulse control or obsessive compulsive behavior. Although it sounds like a rather pleasing condition to be afflicted with, and if you had to choose a disease, it probably would be the top of most people's lists, what with its multiple orgasms and almost sexual desire, capacity and endurance, but like most things in life, by definition, too much of a good thing is too much. People who experience these hypersexual behaviours in their manic phases usually bitterly regret their actions and as a result, a depression results. So no matter what you call it or what label you put on it, sexual addiction is a very real affliction that may interfere with a person's everyday living. Not surprisingly to most, the disorder is most common amongst men. Sexual addiction is compulsive, and it may be displayed a number of ways, including having multiple sexual partners or extramarital affairs, having sex with a succession of anonymous partners, including prostitutes, using ex- sexually explicit phone lines, engaging in masochistic or sadistic sex, such as experiencing sexual excitement by inflicting or receiving pain during sex, exposing yourself in public, or spending way too much time on the Internet. Many people who are sexually addicted lead seemingly normal existences and may indeed have normal married lives, but they often lead double lives and have difficulty establishing and maintaining emotional intimacy. Sexual addiction tends to be chronic, intense and beyond your ability to control. Although you may seek fulfillment through sexually compulsive behavior, you're unlikely to achieve it over the long term. In fact, you may feel your life becoming increasingly empty. People with compulsive sexual behaviour often use sex as a means of dealing with other problems such as loneliness, depression, anxiety or stress. Many people believe that psychological disorders underlie sexual addiction. Sexual addiction may even be used as a coping mechanism for other emotional problems. For example, if you grew up in a dysfunctional family or were sexually or physically abused as a child, you may have an unhealthy attitude towards sex feeling lonely and depressed, you may perceive your sexual compulsions as a means of filling the voids in your life. But even if you find short-term relief through compulsive sexual behavior, your negative feelings soon return, often at an intensified level. The actual biological basis of this condition is not very clear, although one of the major clues has been found through a particular monkey study way back in 1939 by the team of Heinrich Kluver and Paul Busey from University of Chicago, when they removed portions of the right and left temporal lobes, including a special nucleus called the amygdala of the brains of rhesus monkeys. The behavioural changes that they observed were an increase in oral exploratory behaviour, tactile exploratory behaviour, memory disorders, placidity, and inability to recognise objects or faces, and hypersexuality. So important was his finding that this set of symptoms is now referred to as kluver syndrome. In humans, the presence of kluver syndrome symptoms, although rare, may result from a variety of other conditions, including um, head trauma, Alzheimer's disease, Picks disease, and other brain disorders. But back to the disease. Now you know what it is. You know what you've. To, now what do you do if you've got it? Well, as with most addictions, if you want to beat it, you'll need professional treatment. If you're concerned that you're obsessed with sex, look for a doctor who specializes in treating sexual behavior disorders. Your family doctor may be able to give you the name of a specialist or contact a major hospital in your area and ask for a referral. The treatment of sexual obsession may include psychotherapy, marriage counseling, or even the use of antidepressants such as Prozac's. So, the next time some gorgeous guy or girl walks up to you in a bar and says, Hi, I'm a nymphomaniac and I want to take you home and tear you apart, please, don't exacerbate the problem. Decline their advances and send them off to the doctor. You know you will be doing them a huge favour.
0: That was Adam Mark reporting from 2003, trying to get too much of a good thing. When you've listened to radio streamed from the net, ripped a CD or music you've downloaded, Little did you know that the music was reading your mind. Chris Stewart from 2003 reports on the psychology of MP3s.
2: Just a few weeks ago, I bought one of those newfangled MP3 player thingies. Without resorting to a shameless plug for one brand over another, let's just say it was made by a certain edible computer company. And my goodness, aren't they fun? I can now carry my entire music collection around in my jeans. Though, of course, it doesn't mean my music collection is any better now, just smaller. Now the contents of all those CDs that I never played at home can sit on a tiny hard drive in my hip pocket and never get listened to. So after days of playing with my new toy, stringing together Miles Davis with Kyle Minogue, just because I can, I went out to find just how this whole MP3 thing works. And I discovered that my new music player knows a hell of a lot about my psychology. MP3s have become popular because they're small. Not physically small, but small data files. A three-minute song on a CD is about 30 megabytes of data, which is more than 20 floppy disks for those of you who remember them. By contrast, an mp3 of the same song is about one-tenth that size, and when you're broadcasting music over the net, or moving your CD collection onto a sexy new hip-pocket player, that factor of ten is all-important. No one wants to wait a few hours for an internet radio stream to start playing, but even with a modem connection, mp3 music can download to your computer and start playing in seconds but it would be pointless having a nice small easily downloadable file that sounds like crap the beauty of the mp3 format is that even at one-tenth the size you still have to listen really hard to notice any difference from the full quality CD sound Trimming all that music onto one tenth the data can't be a simple trick. And the computer code that creates and reads MP3 files has some very cool tricks. File compression is always about removing data, and in music data means two things, frequency and volume. You can't compress music without losing some of the sound. You could make a music file smaller by taking out all the high notes and be left with a low, muddy rumble or you could limit the range of volumes of the different sounds in the music and have a flat, listless noise. So you can't just go knocking bits out of the music file and expect it to sound good. You have to be tricky. In fact, you have to use a bit of psychology. Back in the 1980s, a German PhD student called Karl-Heinz Brandenburg came up with a new way to compress music. He was studying the way the brain reacts to the sounds picked up by the ears, an area of research called psychoacoustics. He knew that humans can only hear sounds between the very low notes around 20 Hz and the very high notes of about 20,000 Hz. He also knew that what we hear depends on the sound's volume. For example, we can hear a soft high note, but not a soft low note. But he also knew that if we hear a loud sound immediately before or after a soft sound, we only hear the loud one the brain takes a short while to process a signal from the ear and for a fraction of a second a loud noise can completely swamp a soft one even if the soft one came first this is called pre and post masking and it's the key to mp3 compression Brandenburg's big idea was this if you know what the human brain is capable of hearing you also know what it can't hear So all you have to do is scan a music file to find all the bits of sound that would be masked by a nearby, louder sound, and then you remove them. It turns out that in an average piece of music, there's a hell of a lot of sound that gets recorded and burnt onto a CD, but that we don't actually hear, because they get masked by other sounds. Loud percussion masks quiet strings. Squealing saxophone masks acoustic guitar. In practice, of course, what this means is writing a piece of computer code that models the human ear and brain's response to sound, and then using this to filter data out of a music file. And that's no mean feat, which is why the MP3 revolution didn't kick off properly until the 1990s, when the computer chips and the MP3 software were able to accomplish their job fast enough for people to pay attention. Not all sounds compress equally well using an mp3 encoder, simply because our ears are more tuned to some sounds than others. It's no coincidence that the human voice is one of the hardest sounds to compress well, since that's the sound we're most adapted to hear. So for years, a cappella songs have been used to test the development of the mp3 coding technique, and Suzanne Vega's song Tom's Diner has been on high rotation with the mp3 development team.
0: The that was Chris Stewart in 2003, explaining the MP3. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2 scrcom That's diffusion at 2 scrcom And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. Or just say hello. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www. Dot diffusionradio.com Contributing to the program from 2003 were Tim Baines, Amanda Hamilton, Adam Mark and Chris Stewart. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
4: Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Whatmore on guitar.